Hey, honkies and honkettes, welcome to the preamble for Electric Liberty Land number 132. Now, if you ain't heard yet, we done been demonetized on the YouTubes officially. We don't know why. They haven't told us. Maybe we'll find out. <laughs> but shocking, considering the wonderful work that John Odermatt does with Felony Fridays. Of course, me, the crap I spew, understandably demonetized. No need for shekels. But still, if you'd like to support us, that would be great. You can go to patreon.com forward slash lions of liberty. Try to give us some money for the sweet liberty we bring to your ears with our unique and wonderful variety show format. All right, into the show. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land here on the Lions of Liberty podcast, your weekly shot of culture, comedy, and liberty with your host, Brian McWilliams. Boom! My rock'em sock'em liberty robots. Welcome to Electric Liberty Land, episode number 132. Meaning you can find all of the show notes at lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL132. And uh, yeah, unlike last week's episode, I said the name of the episode correctly. So I don't have to go and edit in <laughs> screaming numbers into, into the spaces I have to edit in. But I thought it was, eh, I don't know. I thought it was kind of funny to do it that way. And hopefully you did too. Anyway, on today's show, I have a special guest, Dr. Eric Larson. He's going to be joining me in just a minute. But before I bring him on, I do want to uh, <laughs> I do want to ramble on on one quick story, and then I'm going to buttress the episode by doing some current events at the end, because I'm going to talk to Eric for about 45 minutes, and we're going to concentrate on Justin Amash, as Eric is very good friends with him, talking about his Declaration of Independence, talking about a potential run as uh, president, and what party he may decide to run at. But before I do that, I wanted to get into this tweet from Joss Whedon, who is just a shrieking lunatic. Now, if you've heard of Joss Whedon, you probably have heard of him because he was famous for creating the show Serenity, which then became a movie, and of course makes this doubly hilarious when you hear this ridiculous tweet. So this is what he tweets out on, on the 4th of July. We have a racist, fascist president who's using armed thugs and law enforcement and illegal militias to keep us cowed and hopeless, and he'll take the 2020 election by armed force and blatant treasonous criminality, and that's us now. We're the country with concentration camps. So happy for it. <laughs> now, I read this, and naturally, knowing what he's famous for, I had to return fire by tweeting back at him, Serenity now, Joss. Serenity now. <laughs> God damn. Do these people really believe this tripe that they're throwing out here? Really? He's going to take the 2020 election by armed force. They think that his trolling tweets, and Donald Trump trolls the hell out of the left. These tweets and these, these offhand mentions that Donald Trump goes, oh, maybe I'll stick around uh, past 2024. He knows that these people are going to buy it hook, line, and sinker, and every time they do... <laughs> They really think he's going to have the military backing to stay in power past his expiration date. And if he did, by the way, he would die in office. The guy's like 80. He would just die. But yo, Joss Whedon, he thinks that Donald Trump has illegal militias keeping people cowed and hopeless. Joss, what do you think Antifa is, man? I don't see Patriot Prayer going out there against, you know, people that are marching down the street and just beating the living crap out of them. If that's the illegal militia he's referring to. I guess that's Donald Trump's illegal militia. Antifa just literally goes around beating up elderly people, pepper spraying women in the face, beating journalists so they have to go to the hospital. What reality does this lunatic live in? 
Has he jumped onto the page? Is he like SpongeBob SquarePants in one of my favorite episodes where SpongeBob meets Doodle Bob and anything he writes becomes reality? Is this, has Josh lost his goddamn mind? Like my, everything about the left right here. All this insanity that you see about Trump right here in one tree on the 4th of July. So happy post 4th of July, everybody. And, uh, of course, I hope none of you blew off any of your fingertips. I hope all your thumbs are there. I did request, though, if you did blow off any fingertips, please tweet them at me. I will applaud your efforts. And, uh, you know, I never plug our Instagram on here, but Lions of Liberty is on Instagram. You can find us very easily. It's just Lions of Liberty. And you will see that I partook in the festivities of the 4th of July by using my buddy Eric's Boeing or Boring Company flamethrower to fantastic effect. So make sure you check that out. All right, let's get into my interview with Dr. Larson. All right, as promised, I am here with a special guest today. I'm here with Dr. Eric Larson, and you guys might remember Eric. He was on the podcast, I believe it was episode 358, uh, talking about medical cartels with Mark on the flagship Lions of Liberty show. But I am bringing him back on specifically to talk about Justin Amash. And uh, Eric, first off, let me, uh, well, you know what, I'll get through the bio first, but he was responsible for bringing Justin on the show and, uh, and having him sit down with Mark, wherein we got a lot of coverage for that. You know, yeah. Justin Amash sat down, yeah, man, I mean, he sat down with Mark, it was really, what he got a lot of attention for making that, you know, I'm not going to rule out a presidential run remark, and even, you know, we got linked to um, Roll Call and, uh, you know, all sorts of, all sorts a of reason, you're all over, yeah. Reason, yeah, exactly. So you can hear his voice, but let me get through this bio real quick, Eric. Uh, so, of course, he is also the host of the Paradox podcast, wherein he breaks down what's going on in medical issues today, looking at it from a pre-market perspective. And uh, he's also a assistant, cl- or excuse me, a clinical assistant professor in e- anesthesiology at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine, and is in private practice in Grand Rapids, Michigan. So, all you Grand Rapids, Michigan people, make sure to look up Dr. Eric Larson. Eric, welcome to Electric Liberty Land. Thanks so much for having me on. I'm a big fan of the show. Thanks well, thank you. Should I call you doctor or just Eric? Whatever's comfortable. Unless you're a nurse or medical student, Eric's fine right now. Okay, for now. When I turn nursing, I'll, I'll circle back though. And actually, you know, I have a couple of friends that went into nursing. They, I think they moved out to like Alabama or something to do nursing school, but a lot of money to be made in nursing right now. Oh, Damn yeah, much. definitely. Yeah, I, uh, the catheters, right? I draw the line up. <laughs> um, so, yeah, man, I mean, you, so, you know, obviously you're on with Mark and, and you facilitate, as I mentioned, Justin Amash coming on the show. And uh, you've been friends with him for what, 10 years now, something like that? Yeah, it's, it was right after the Ron Paul uh, campaign, actually. Right when it wrapped up, the primary was in January, I think, of 2008 mm-hmm. uh, in Michigan. And right after that, uh, I, was, I had been trying to contact him for some time because, so I don't know if you remember the days of the meetups back then in yeah. 2008, the, the original Ron Paul things, right? And so it, it was totally unofficial campaigns. You kind of just set up these sort of organizations. And we had a fairly large one here in Grand Rapids. I mean, I think you're probably about 150 or 200 people who are doing stuff. And you know, this town's not gigantic. It's like a couple hundred thousand people. So it was a pretty sizable organization. It was, you know, all that juice and sort of the, uh, the energy that was there. Yeah. Well, one thing Ron didn't have a lot of is people giving money to him. So it wasn't hard to find, you go to the FEC forums and find out who has contributed to his campaign. And well, I mean, Justin was one of the, one of those who had contributed. And so I tried to get a hold of him to find out, you know, who he was and things like that. Um, and I wasn't able to get a hold of him until after the 
primary. And it turns out I noticed at the same time, around the same time, that he was running for my state house district because he only lives like two miles from my house. So I thought, well, I got to try and you know talk to this guy, see what he's like. Because if he's giving to Ron Paul, that's a pretty unusual sort of person to do that. Right. Um, and uh, so we met and talked for a while. I talked did, to him. Did you, meet, did you meet when he opened his front door and you jumped out of the bushes and you were like, no, ah! No. Although, although it's funny, I actually, I did, I did a lit drop through his neighborhood, hoping <laughs> that maybe he might be home or something. And he wasn't. Right, yeah. um, so, but he was, I guess, excited that someone dropped Ron Paul literature <laughs> in, the, in the entire neighborhood. Uh, yeah, so we met and I talked and I remember coming home to my wife. And, and at that point, uh, aside from just my limited time in the Ron Paul thing with the Republican Party, I was pretty much a Libertarian Party person. I'd, been, I'd run for state office a couple times in the Libertarian Party. I was a... Um, the chair of the local county party and you know, other positions. As most Libertarian Party people know, it's you know pretty small organization, so you kind of do what you can. Uh, and so, um, so I came home with my wife, and it's like, wow, this guy, I mean, if he's half as good as he was just talking to him, I mean, this is, he'd be amazing. So, yeah. I mean, so I said, I'm all in, you know, which for me, I thought, well, that's like three months because people I really like and who have like great politics, they don't survive. I mean, you know. Yeah, you get burned out really quickly in this. Yeah, and as a, any, a libertarian anything, I think you, know, you really suffer from burnout very quickly. Yeah, I mean, I, and the thing is they're going to lose. So, yeah. uh, and, he was running against, and he was running against someone who was uh, her husband, who I think they were divorced and anything, but the same last name. And so he, she was going to take over his uh, house seat. You know, she paid the dues and the party and all that stuff, which is most of the small local party stuff is going to be, you know, you pay dues and all that. You have to be a known entity within the party to get volunteers and whatever. And he's like, I'm going to run against her. And I thought, well, okay, whatever. Um, but, I'll, you know, I'm, I'm behind you. And then he won. And, he, and once you're in the primary, the, the election's over in this area. So the general's a formality. Mm-hmm. And so he served in the House, and he was even better probably in the House than I thought it was possible. Uh, we became very close and he would, you know, ask me occasionally on rare occasions, like, you know, what do I think about X, Y, or Z, if it's like a healthcare issue or something he didn't understand. Um, but he would tell stories of, you know, he goes, to, he'd come over, we'd talk about things like, well, you know, I'm in the house. And so he'd come prepared with his votes for the day. Like, you know, there are 10 bills up and I know how I'm going to vote on all of them. But if this amendment goes forward, then I'm going to vote, you know, no or yes or whatever. There's no abstention in Michigan. You either have to vote yes or no. So it's a little bit trickier. And obviously, there's no the Constitution does not bind you to votes. Like it's easier in the, on the in some ways in D.C. because you say, well, it's not authorized the Constitution. I'll just say no. Mm. Uh, but you don't have that. You don't have that luxury, I guess, in this, at a state level. So um, so anyway, he would have these forms, that, and a lot of the other legislators would laugh at him because you know they didn't read the legislation for the most course, part. Yeah. Uh, most of the time, it's uh, their voice, votes would be based on what the committee vote was. So if all the Republicans voted for something or all the Democrats voted for something, that's, that's how they base their votes. Um, and so they would kind of make fun of him. But he noticed oh, after like a year, they would like, hey, do you mind if I take a look at that or make a quick copy of your sheet? So, <laughs> They're literally crib sheeting off of him. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and there was actually one day he came in and they had like some huge day with like 30 votes or something. And, and uh, same thing. Like they were like, hey, Justin, can we get your... <laughs> <laughs> your, that's your, a powerful your, position to be in though i mean you know i can't right. think about it the influence there is pretty amazing right because he's he's the only one I, I i probably shouldn't say only one but he's one virtually only one who's actually reading the legislation yeah. and um he's an attorney so he can kind of weed through through that stuff and generally state laws are actually they're not voluminous i mean it's only like mm-hmm. five pages i actually serve on the state medical society le- reg- regulation legislation where we'd kind of review bills too and so we can even understand it as doctors so um but anyway, so then he came and said, I'm going to run for Congress. And we're like, 
you're crazy. This guy's been in office for like 14, 16 years. He's never even run to get in a primary because he's just so unbeatable. He's like the, he's like that grandfatherly guy and no one ever, you know, and it's very establishmenty in Grand Rapids. I mean, I think people probably think it's like some radical place because Justin's there, but it is not that way. I mean, there's DeVos money. There's all this sort of set, um, sort of power structure. And he announced, and then two days later, Vern Ehlers, uh, who was a sitting congressman, retired. He didn't even want to run. And Timing, man. <laughs> and so then a couple people jumped in the primary who were establishment people. He beat them. Uh, and he's won every race pretty easily. He had one serious primary challenge in 2014. Uh, that was Brian Ellis, who raised, I think, a million dollars. He had the backing of the NRA, mm. Right to Life, Chamber of Commerce, Farm Bureau. Basically, every Republican PAC in existence uh, was was backing it was against Justin because occasionally Justin would vote the wrong way in a bill with that right to life would be in favor of even though Justin's pro life they they would have sort of symbolic votes for ones that he thought were not appropriate in from a constitutional reasons and so they could get upset about that and so they all the establishment got together we got a bunch of money we got a guy who's got nothing else on us to do right now he's like an investment banker or something I can't remember what he was exactly. And he crushed him by like 11 points. It wasn't even really close. And, you know, there were ads on there. Devin Nunes was calling him you know, Al-Qaeda's best friend. It was like yeah, yeah. all this horrible stuff. Uh, and at that point, everyone's like, yeah, we're not going to touch this guy. Because the interesting thing with Justin is he doesn't get any PAC money. I mean, I think he's like 0.1% or something. He gets almost nothing. Hmm. They don't even bother going to his office. They will lobby him occasionally to explain a bill, but they're not going to, they don't, they don't ever give any, donate money to him. But he is been smart enough to getting a large donor pool that's nationwide. And so that's, yeah. what's, that's what's kept him afloat. And that's even why, you know, when people talk about him losing the DeVos family money, which is not surprising with Betsy DeVos and her position in the Department of Education with the Trump administration, right. her family really, they have really not supported him for a little while anyway, um, financially anyway. They didn't really provide that much money. I mean, they yeah. were useful support very initially, initially with his campaign. So um, well, what's that? So let's 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 segue then into you know obviously he's declared his independence uh, yes. very famously in an op-ed to the Washington Post declared his independence to, uh, from the GOP and uh, an interesting place to declare it. Of course, the Washington Post is more uh, liberal slanted uh, and, uh-huh. and it it, it does uh, raise eyebrows that he chose that of all places to publish it. But um, you know he's going to be now running, I believe, as an independent. Correctly, he's going he's going to be defending his seat. He's going to be running it as an independent. So, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Have you talked about, you know, what, where is he expecting the funding base? Is it this, these principled people? Is he expecting libertarians to come out in droves to support him uh, through funds? Is he looking for different avenues? You know, what are, what, tell me a little bit about the insight you've got from him, not only on his seat running as an independent. And, you know, as a follow-up question uh, to that, you know, he made this, this impressive gesture. And uh, he's being attacked from both sides, as you would imagine. Yeah. But I wonder if anybody else is going to follow his lead. And it, have you heard any rumblings about that? Uh, well, first, we'll talk about the the race, I guess, is an independent here locally. So I think the important thing for people to know who aren't you know on the ground here in Grand Rapids, we don't have specific numbers, but our assumption is 20 to 30% crossover vote anyway during a general election for him, which is why he outperforms the the the, the party pretty handily every election. Um, so he does much, much better in areas that are heavily democratic. Uh, so there's, so clearly he gets lots of democratic votes. Um, so I suspect, and I've, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who are Democrats or their family members are Democrats. And they're like, 
we don't vote for any Republicans, but we'd always vote for Justin because we like his integrity. We like how he has principled stands. We don't always agree with every vote he makes, but we like the fact that he's an independent thinker. And that was always sort of a term use. So, I mean, my, my assumption is, honestly, I, th- I think he's pretty easily going to win. Um, and now by easily, I mean, it's not like he's going to win by 20 points, but because he's going to have the Democrat and Republican. But I think they're going to run fairly conventional campaigns. I think they'll, I think they'll really struggle in, in a general. Uh, I think he would have won a primary as well had he decided to stick in the Republican Party. I mean, he's, he does have a pretty large base of support. Mm. Uh, and as far as fundraising, I, I think he has done very well since, <laughs> since well, the last I, couple I, months. Kind of like you said, I would, I, it's, it's in a way, the timing is good for him because you've got this, you've got him coming out and leaving the GOP. And I think there will be Democrats that say they look at, at him as a, as a person, what he's done, his track record, being individual. And they look at the, they look at the GOP. They don't like Trump. They don't necessarily like what the GOP is doing. Uh, or of course, most Democrats hate it. But I think yeah. a lot of Democrats are also looking at their own party. And this is why it bleeds into my question about, is anybody going to follow his lead? Because there've got to be Democrats out there that are looking at their party going completely socialist, going communist, going just bonkers with these policies. And, and, in, and in a time where the, the deficits are in the trillions and there's no way we can afford any of this shit. And you say, they've got to be going, there's, there's a better option here. You know, I, and I wonder if the Democrats are going to throw the support his way. And if people from the democratic party, I mean, even Nancy Pelosi is now attacking her own party and throwing AOC under the bus. I wonder if Nancy Pelosi's the closest person to saying, I'm going to be independent too now. I mean, I actually, the way I look at it is kind of reverse from what you, the way you look at it. But I think you're right in that there's a lot of dissatisfaction with the parties. And I think when Justin made his independence, and I hope I'm doing a good therapy session for you because I know he's your pick for the. Yeah, well, oh, no, I have to correct you on that. He was my pick. Oh, you gave so, him up? So what happened? Yeah, I drafted Justin Amash oh. to be my presidential pick. He was my president. Uh, or no, vice president. I think I had Judge Knapp. I, I'm trying to remember because it was the first draft we did. So I had Amash. And then I did not keep him because I looked at, because he was such a high pick for me. I think he was either first or second round. So, of course, you know, fantasy drafts, you got to go for value. Yeah. And my keeper picks, I kept like my fifth round, sixth round picks. And I said, okay, I'll put a mosh back in the pool. I'll come get him later. You know, I'll loop back around, hopefully get, get him with better value. And of course, we did the draft like a week after he was on our podcast and was like, I might run for president. And I was like, <laughs> you son of a bitch, Shamash. <laughs> so, Rico. That bastard uh, oh. smoked him up. So now he's on Team TBD. <laughs> Still oh. even I am. I'm going to make. I'm going to make you feel really bad. Then uh, uh, I know. I, I I'm anticipating I've, hating I've, everything that's about to be said to me. So uh, so it, as far as the independent thing goes, I, I think it's important to look at what caused Amash to to leave the party. I mean. Backing up initially to when he was never in, in the graces of the party. I mean, the party always is working against him. There, yeah. There's no money that the party gives you. There's no significant support they give you as far as like, there's some voter list maybe, but for the most part, the party does not, the party's not that helpful uh, for most people. And, and so the way it works in DC is that you have to be in, in cahoots. You have to be basically close to leadership and follow what they say. Mm. And that's not just, that's not just the Republican party. That's the democratic party. And, and you're seeing that you see that with people who are coming in, who have ideas and they want to try and you know, express them. And I think AOC is a great example. Uh, she represents a significant wing of their party and green new deal, you know, Medicare for all, all this, you know, you know, manna from heaven, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and their voice is effectively cut off. And I think, you know, the impeachment talk is also a significant portion of their, their base really wants, you know, impeachment. Now, 
and I think Pelosi's making it a political judgment. It's like, well, there's a bad idea, so I'm going to block all this stuff. And unfortunately, in Congress, the speaker has all the power. Mm. And very interesting, and I didn't know this until the last town hall when Justin was talking about it, but the first vote that occurs every session, in, or like one of the first votes, is a suspension of the rules. So there are, there are basic parliamentary rules that the House is, that runs under for like 150 years or whatever. Uh, but what happens at the beginning of, this, of the week is that the speaker sort of says, hey, we're going to have a, we're going to suspend the rules. And so we're going to, that means the speaker then controls the process, how many amendments can come up, mm. how, the, how the work flows, right? Right, yeah. And so if you have a speaker like, let's say, Ryan or Boehner or now Pelosi, who wants to be a dictator and say, I'm going to control everything, well, they, when you, as soon as the members say, yep, we suspend the rules and we basically you know, yield our, all, our, you know, all the rights and privileges to the speaker, the speaker now has 100% control of the agenda, everything that goes on. You can't bring amendments. You can't bring anything to committees. You can't, you can't have committee spots. You can't. And then if you only have three or four people who are controlling all the legislation, how everything, the business runs in the house, there's only one person that if you're a lobbyist, you have to go talk to, hmm. right? You just talk to the Senate majority leader, maybe talk to the minority leader and the minority right, yeah. uh, house. You get, you get but, the time and, they, and the spotlight as, as needed for your pet project. So, so now if I'm the speaker, I not only do I have control over the entire agenda, but I have control of all the money. And hmm. so if, if I want, if someone's going to, speak out against me and say, you know, challenge me or whatever. I'm going to say, well, you're just not getting a PAC money. And so I think you saw this when you saw the Freedom Caucus just totally cave, right? I mean, yeah. you saw them, they were strong. They were, when they were together and they had enough votes to pre- pre- prevent that. But there's so much pressure when 60% or 70% of your funding is, is dependent on these PACs. Mm-hmm. You have really no, unless you think you can go out and raise it some other way, and you really want your position and maybe, you know, you may be principled, you may have all these sort of ideas of what you want to do, you're really beholden to the speaker entirely. And so what happens is, and especially when the speaker is controlled by the president, mm-hmm. uh, then, then your ability to sort of challenge things is gone. So I think what you're going to start seeing, this is my expectation with Justin. I, I think, I don't think people are going to be bold and become independent uh, mm-hmm. in the Congress. I, I think <laughs> you don't find many bold people there because they don't have this independent sort of funding source. I mean, there are some independently wealthy Congress people, but I mean, Justin's not independently wealthy, but he's got the donor base, you know, but I, I think, you know, you, you're going to see people who are going to question like an AOC, like, well, why am I, why we keep, why am I not allowed to bring my ideas forth? And I think, and the base is going to say, why can't we bring impeachment papers for, you know, there's going to be all sorts of people who are going to be clamoring for sort of their voice. I mean, the house is originally set up to do that, right? That, it's a discovery process. You're supposed to discover the truth to discover what sort of the people want. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to have a closed top-down process where we're going to figure out the budget and four people are going to decide. I mean, that's yeah. crazy, but that's how it works right now. And that's, and that's the processing that Justin's sort of been by himself sort of fighting. Uh, and that's what he was hoping to do for the Freedom Caucus. And they just did not see the, the – they thought it was too difficult an argument to make uh, to the American people about process and so but i think i think you're seeing from his notoriety and his and what's coming out that there's a lot of appetite for that i think so i mean and, and he said it very well in his letter that he wrote for the you know, the op-ed for the washington post talking about how just you know the, the bipartisanship has essentially silenced any kind of back and forth any ideas being put forward so i think he did a good job of kind of codifying what people already know which is that this is basically a zero-sum game. You're, there's two people talking past each other. As you're saying, when there's, when there's complete control over the minutes and the talking and the pack, 
there's really not a point. If you're an individual voice trying to make a point, trying to bring people together, then you feel like you're just banging your head against the wall and wasting time. And, you know, for the American people, they're always, you know, whoever's in power always blames the other, or, or, or whoever is, isn't in power, excuse me, blames the people in power for squashing their ability to get everything done. And it goes you know, back and forth. And we just see the, the big interests get bigger and the establishment narrative get told. And then, as, uh, as Amash said, nothing really substantive gets done that speaks to the center of the country or for actually achieving something that the most majority might actually want. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you see the fact that there hasn't been a budget passed in, I don't know, like 10 years oh, or something. Yeah. Yeah, that's an it example. It keeps getting, it somehow increases, but it never, never seems to pass. Yeah, the continuing resolutions where they just continue past these things and yep. sort of kick the can down the road. Uh, you know, it's a dysfunctional house. The, the legislative branch has basically ceded a lot of their authority and power over to the executive branch. I mean, which you're, you know, seemed to the administrative stage or whatever. And and I, that's, that just, again, speaks to what the problem is. And then when you have basically these parties that are interested only in winning and they, and they will, and like he said, is up it, they will win at any cost. They don't care about the outcomes because I don't know if it was Michael Malison or some, you know, conservatives are like driving the speed limit. They're progressives driving the speed limit right, or yeah. something like that. Yeah, right? It was Malice, I think. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, it feels like that's because no matter the government grows, maybe faster grows in spurts, but it seems to always continue to grow. And so the one thing about him, I, I mean, I talked to him. I, do, I don't know how he stays sane while he, where he is. I, yeah, I'd be, I, would, I think that's why you see people go for like one term and they're like, this is nuts. I'm out of here because well, I can't. It's like I don't know how. About anything with libertarian, you know, saying he's not necessarily identifying as libertarian, although I want to ask you about that. Um, you know, but I think anything when you're, when you're coming from a libertarian perspective, because we see it just dealing with talking to everyday people, let alone people that are ingrained establishment types with political motives and political backing. Yeah, you just, it's hard not to get burned out because when you continuously are pushing and you're seeing no actual response, you're not seeing a lot of action, you figure you're putting all this wasted effort, um, it's hard not to just think you're screaming into, uh, into the void and just to say, you know, screw it, I have better things to do with my time. Yeah, and, and he is so optimistic about things and changing things. It's really, I, it's I mean- better man than I. <laughs> I, I. I, yeah, my head goes off to him. I, he would come back. He's like, you know, I've got this coalition in the state house where there are 10 of us now. I'm like, well, that's 110 to 10, but okay. I mean, I guess that's, I guess that's, you know, an improvement. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, then, you know, he forms his freedom caucus. He was very hopeful about this. He almost stopped. Was it section 215 or one of the FISA things back four, six years ago, you know, he was close, but the, again, the establishment sort of, you know, Boehner and the, the and Pelosi teamed up to, to stop it. Yeah. Um, I mean, he also had a bill to rein in. You mentioned, you know, re- trying to rein in um, the presidential authority. I think I, I know. I know he had put forth a bill or was yeah. co-signatory on a bill that was aimed specifically at reining in presidential powers and giving Congress more say. I'm trying to remember the exact bill was at this point. But. Yeah, I don't know. And and uh, you know, one of the things he's been really consistent about and is the War Powers Act it, because people completely yeah. misinterpret that and they're like, well, the president can do whatever they want and get back to Congress in two months. Like that's crazy. That's not yeah. what it's as it says. If you're immediately attacked, you can respond. You have right. six. I mean. <laughs> unless there's an imminent threat, like, you know, nuclear missiles over the country or something, you're not allowed to do a strike. And that's, it, it was basically a way of codifying what the constitution says is why that war powers act was passed. Mm-hmm. And so we'd always explain to so people were like, yeah, you don't, you can wait for two months. And it's like, no, that's totally wrong. And it was interesting is when Obama was initially going to go into Syria. I don't know if you recall that it was probably, I don't know, six, eight years ago. Now I can't remember, but, um, Justin was the first one to, to come out and say, we can't do this. We have to, you have to declare war. It's not part of the um, authorization of use of military force. And so he went right. So what he does, he's done hundreds of town halls in, in Grand Rapids in the district. 
And so he just said, well, I'm just gonna start hosting downtown halls. And so he had like four almost immediately after when this news broke that Obama's kind of thinking about it. He, he didn't like just jump in. He's like, well, you know, I do this, which of course got all the talking heads in DC excited. You know, they're going to be war. All right. We're going to yeah. stop all this, you know, whatever <laughs> genocides going on in Syria. And Justin was had, especially, you know, his mom, her, a lot of her family's in Syria. And so he has extra ties to Syria. He's like, well, I want to see what the people want. And so he had he started hosting these town halls and not surprisingly, you know, there'd be 500 people in the room and he said, he'd say, start by saying, how many people think there should be war? And like one person will hold their hand, maybe two. And how many people should think we shouldn't? You know, every hand goes up pretty much. Yeah. Uh, and then he gave his case for why he thinks it's you know, not a good idea and that we don't really know who the enemy is and all this, you know, sort of common sense things. Uh, and then after like by his third one, so the, the local affiliates picking up on it, and then suddenly CBS News is out. And then he had a couple national people at his town halls in Grand Rapids. And they're like, you know, Congressman holds a town hall about talking about the Syria. T- and I think he's the one who stopped that war uh, from happening to Obama. I think he's the one who started that, that process where people started questioning it. Now, you can say, well, it's because Republicans are opposed to the war and because you know, Obama's president. And I think that's absolutely true. I think the reason most Republicans were against it is because Obama's president. Right. And they had the majority. However, I think they were not inclined to do that until there was, they could saw that there was you know, not much broad support within the American people. Not that they ever really talked to him very often. Yeah. Well, that's what's kind of shocking, though, that the ongoing war with Yemen or the support of the war in Yemen, I should say, of the Saudis isn't getting more attention because I know I know Amash has made several attempts to rein this in. They're ongoing and we just can't seem to get media attention for it. You can't seem to get people uh, aware of it or uh, coming out against them. Even the Democratic debates, there's no mention of Yemen anytime. It's not on stage. It's not on the top of the minds, despite the fact that we're murdering, I mean, thousands and thousands of children, children, women and children. I think the latest stats are some. I think like 60,000 people with cholera right now. It's just, it's atrocious. I mean, you're the doctor. You probably know even better than I do, but that's what's mind boggling to me is, you know, you've got this man getting so much attention, speaking out on these topics and making every effort he can. And it's still like we're saying, it's like this falling on deaf ears thing that it, it is amazing. He's not just giving up. We don't rise to the level of our expectations. We fall to the level of our training. Those epic words from Archilochus can sum up your ability to succeed or fail in business. I want to recommend Conversation Mat Time to our listeners as a way to hone your one-on-one conversation skills in a role-playing session that can help take you to the next level. During 25-minute sessions, you'll work through the best way to approach that raise, that interview, or that relationship with a practice professional that will provide the confidence and experience you need to get paid what you're worth or take that interpersonal risk you've never been able to conquer. Just like in jiu-jitsu, the difference between a novice and a black belt is mat time. Train to win. Visit conversationmattime.com and take advantage of a free 15-minute consultation just for listeners of this show. I, I would. So what I thought was very interesting is on Sunday's talk show with um, Jake Tapper when he, would, when he sort of explained his case for why he announced his independence. And, and Tapper asked one of the questions was like, you know, how many people do you think have read the Mueller report in Congress, Right. right. And he's like, well, I think it's probably about 15%. Mm-hmm. And then, and so what's, I think the last day or so, you started seeing people asking their congressmen, hey, have you read this thing? And, yeah. and it's, it's amazing how many of them said, well, I don't need to read it, or I already know what's in it, or I've got to get to it at this point. And a lot of these people are people who made statements one way or the other. Of it's course. very interesting. And <laughs> so I think 
So I think, you know, you look at why, what's the use for him being independent and doing all this stuff? Well, I think he's bringing to light a lot of the deficiencies in our government and how it's run. I mean, you can be an anarchist and say we shouldn't have all this stuff, but the fact is we do right now. And so you have exactly. to, you want it probably to work as best as you can and probably within the framework of the constitution, uh, because that would limit it a lot if you're, you know, libertarian well, free market mind. Let's, let's hold, let's go back to the Mueller report for a minute because I yeah. do, you know, I have not read it. I, I will be honest. I've not read the 400 pages. I don't have the time. Um, yeah. But he did, and I want to see you know, what. So, what did he take out of it? Because I know he's saying there's things in there that he found. Because for me, I viewed it as uh, you know a nonsense report that was made out of FISA abuses that were nonsense to begin with, which is kind of funny that and people were calling him Ash out because they're saying you're fighting against the FISA abuses, but meanwhile you're calling for impeachment based upon these FISA abuses in the first place, which I agreed. And for me, I objected to it in general just because. I think that uh, the entire concept of obstruction of justice is a, a made-up concept that uh, basically just helps law enforcement and the FBI. But I understand it exists, as you said. There's these things that exist. We operate within them currently. So tell me, sure. tell me more about what, what he found in there that really made him say, this is something that I'm going to stick my spear on the ground on and I'm not going to budge. Well, I think it's important to first point out why he said anything, because it obviously was not politically smart move in the sense that it's not going to be helpful to you within the party. I mean, it's right. super unpopular with people who are the base partisans in, in the party. Trump already helps. called him the dumbest man in, uh, in yeah, the I know. house. So. Right. Well, he, <laughs> so that's high praise, really. Yeah, Trump will call you a genius. And then as soon as, and then as, soon as you leave the administration, you're the dumb oh, as a yeah. rock, right? Yeah. Like, you know, whatever. Uh, I mean, I remember sitting down with dinner with him. He, he'd been... He was back for a whole week and we're all like, hey, you want to go out and do something? He's like, I'm reading this report. I got to get through this. Because I promised that I'd read it. And it took him many days because he's like, you know, cross-referencing things. He's like, it's like Game of Thrones trying to figure out yeah. all these Russian names and stuff. And it's really you know, complicated with all the testimonies and things that, and the evidence that's presented. Uh, and we're dinner. He's like, you know, I, he was saying it. It's going to have to be, I'm going to have to come out and say that there was impeachable acts. He said, I didn't want to. I wish you didn't find anything. Um, and, and so his, first of all, it wasn't, it didn't necessarily just start from FISA things. There are other, there are other things that came forward that brought the, uh, that brought the investigation. It says states what actually started the investigation of the Mueller report. It wasn't, um, a, you know, a FISA case. It was, uh, it was, um, or well, Russian pop, potentially with George Papadopoulos or something. Right, which is an FBI. I think the FBI had an it, right. They had Papadopoulos a, initially, and that yeah. then led to the FISA. and that sort of led the led to the start of it. So FISA is sort of there was I think a FISA ruling somewhere in there, but that was not critical to the the investigation. I mean, he's just like Justin was saying. There's things in there where Trump clearly did everything he could to obstruct and prevent the truth from being known. Um, and so you know, I, I think he, I, I understand the people who say, well, you. If there's not a crime, there can't be obstruction. Well, that's not entirely true because if I, you know, if someone accuses me of murder and I suddenly just like leave the country, mm. well, that's, you know, that's obstruction. That doesn't, I maybe I was totally innocent, I, right? I don't have a problem with that though. Well, <laughs> that's, that's my thing. I'm like, I, it's not my job to catch myself. It's your job to catch me, you know? Well, so. I, true. But if you're, if you're innocent, but if you're also doing everything you can, I, so I had a, this this the end of last summer. My my fourteen year old son died in a car accident. Um, oh man! Struck from behind oh, by a woman um, who was driving recklessly. So I've kind of seen the criminal justice system in the other direction. And if and um, I think I would have a lot of trouble it, problem if if she did everything she could to prevent being you know evidence for being brought forth of what she'd done. 
Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I have a hard time even on a libertarian level, even of saying that that'd be okay, that you can prevent that. Now, even if she was unsuccessful in that, and that's sort of, this is the sort of the accusation with Trump that he did everything he could to try and stop it. And he was just totally incompetent in trying to stop people from, you know, he's trying to fire people. So they would stop investigations. Right. That sort of conduct from the, from the person who's in charge of all your entire legal system in this country, who's the, the, the head ex- executor of laws, that's, you know, arguably, probably a, a impeachable event. Because when you look at what is impeachable, it's, you know, people who are either not executing what they're supposed to do. So not like, you know, they're charged with making sure the postal, the mail delivered or whatever, right? Because the postal service, if they don't do it, then that's, you know, technically impeachable event. I mean, obviously. Well, it's, it's, a, it's a wide berth. I mean, it seems like there's not yeah. really a, a sound definition. It's kind of like, you know, it's, you know, if you just feel the guy's kind of messing up. You know, it's like, there was, you left that, I think, intentionally vague for that purpose. Right. And I think, I think the founders really had a hope that it would be used often. I mean, I think it would, their intention was not for the executive to not be that powerful, right? I think they didn't want right. a real strong They probably want most of the power within the legislature because thinking that there's better control by the people over that um, part and the states in the state when the states were selecting their senators. And so the person was just kind of just, you know, doing what they had to do to, to execute the laws that were passed. And so they wanted some if they're not doing the right thing or if they're not executing the right way or whatever that the legislature would say, yeah, you're out of here. We're going to get someone else or just replace you with the vice president. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess you could look back and say, well, that was sort of naive and sort of how it's all going to shake out over, you know, 100, 200 years. Well, how are they supposed to know we're going to cede all the power to the executive branch anyway, right? Yeah, you know, we're we're imperfect people. Uh, You know, we're all fallen or whatever. And so you can't expect, you know, what Madison said, if we were all angels, we wouldn't need a government. But (laughs) you can't expect to have angels in government because they're not going to be there. And so you have to have all kinds of checks on power and stuff. And so... I think that, I mean, that's a reasonable reason. I think there are all kinds of other reasons you could impeach Trump too, like, you know, for all war crimes and stuff. But oh, the yeah. important thing to remember too is that impeachment is two par- parts. It's one part is there's got to be some crime or some sort of impeachable thing, right? Like, you know, you start an unauthorized war. The other thing is there has to be a political will and there has to be, it's a political thing. It's not just a, it's not just, it's not like a law in the books, right? Like, you know, I, you took my TV. Mm-hmm. More than that, it's, and so if you don't have the political part, part there, then there's, then you, I mean, maybe they did something that's not right. Like, you know, starting a continue the war in Yemen, clearly it's impeachable, but that's president's been doing that for a long time and right. there's not been the political will to change it. So, I mean, I think that's really what it comes down to. And his, and his task was to decide was, were impeachable events or acts, did they occur? And so he said they did. He didn't file papers for impeachment. He'd do all that stuff. He thinks, you know, it happened. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, no one's asked him, do you think, Trump's and other things that are impeachable because I'm sure he'd say, yeah, sure. But that's not, that's not been the discussion. Was that, and was the impeachable, was it, was the GOP refusing to impeach Trump or refusing to basically attack him for bringing that up? Was that really the straw that broke the camel's back as far as his decision to leave the GOP? Or is it just really just a culmination of everything, you know, deep rooted in the partisan politics and to seeing how these parties operate? Because you mentioned the lack of political will to impeach Trump, you know, the Democrats talk a big game, and then once they're delivered something they could actually do it on, they say, ah, never mind, because they know that there's the lack of will. They essentially would cede, I think, um, well, number one, I think that the, if the Democrats tried to impeach Trump, it would actually help him anyway. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think they know that. So there's a lack of political will on their side. And of course, the GOP wants to remain in power. So there's a lack of political will on their side. Sure. So, you know, to, to your point, and, and probably Amash's point, but, you know, was this the thing? I mean, it was. It, it, and for people who don't know him and how he operates, 
they don't believe, but I say things like he's very principled and he'll do things what he thinks right, even though they may seem on their face like a, you know, the wrong move politically and strategically. Uh, people won't believe me. They'll think, oh, there's some other reason why he's doing this. And you know, that's just kind of what he thought when he went in. Because I, when I, when I uh, first talked to him, he's, he said, you know, my goal in, in getting involved in politics and all this is to advance liberty and find the biggest platform I can to help advance the movement the best. Mm-hmm. And whatever that might be, whether, you know, start in the state house, then that's why he wanted to go to Congress. He thought that would be a better vehicle for, for moving this forward. And he said, I'm, but I'm going to make sure I do it the right way. It's why, you know, uh, special interests never talk to him. Same thing, you know, Ron Paul happened to Ron Paul, right? Mm-hmm. When you're very principled, you, you have to do some things that are maybe unpopular or maybe are not going to be helpful to you. I mean, maybe they will turn out to be helpful later. I don't know. Maybe this this whole thing will help him. Yeah. Uh, and I think in some ways it's raises notoriety. And I think it's people on the left are willing to listen to him, which is, you know, there's a lot of value there. I mean, Ron Paul brought well, people from the left into libertarianism. Oh, without a doubt. Well, that, and that raises uh, a next question. And then I, I pay, I'll, I'll, ra- I'll raise this last question and then let's talk a little bit about healthcare. Oh, so, okay. uh, and also just one quick note. I was looking, I was looking through, a, I think a Newsweek story talking about the responses to Amash's uh, 4th of July uh, declaration of independence. And I saw Larry Elder was one of the voices speaking out on Twitter and, and attacking Justin Amash for leaving. And I just, I thought that was ridiculous because you know Larry Elder positions himself as a libertarian, as, as a, you know, independent mind pushing the ideals of freedom and liberty. And here he is throwing Amash under the bus, the guy who's been the most, or so, you know, Amash, Massey, and Paul. And I, I consider Amash to be ahead of all of those guys as far as supporting the ideals of liberty pretty, pretty coherently. And you have Larry Elder attacking him for this just goes to show you the kind of the, uh, I don't know, the despicable nature of partisan politics and how the true colors are showing. Yeah, but, I think, uh, yep. that's all good. No, I was going to say, I agree. I think, it's the, I think it's more partisanship. And, and I think people try and just guess who's going to win. I think they're wrong in this case, but you know, that's, that's <laughs> I hope so. I, I'm, rooting, I'm rooting for him, man. Uh, so we, you were talking about Democrats coming over, how Ron Paul was able to bring in a lot of Democrats. He was able to rally independence. And also here's maybe the most important thing. If we're talking about a potential presidential run, which I don't know if this is in the cards or not. Amash, he seems not to rule it out <laughs> intentionally in every interview, but you know, you saw the anti-establishment crowd, I think helped get Trump elected. Now you've got these people that are, you know, rooting for all these other candidates. But if there's one guy that's going to be anti-establishment, it is Justin Amash and yeah. it, emphatically. So give me any insight you got. Is he going to make a run is he considering it? If he did make a run, would it be purely independent? Would he go as a libertarian, do you think? Or, you know, yeah. make up his what's, own new party? What's the answer? Yeah. I mean, I think if you're going to run, if you're going to run for president in 2020, you would, you would not run as an independent unless you had a billion dollars like Ross Perot, you know, who, who pulled it off in Rest whenever it was 92. Yeah, yeah, I know. He just passed away. And just, I was just, just wondering about him the other day. You're old enough to remember, remember his run. Yeah, yeah. And what's interesting is, you know, he came close to winning. I mean, in some ways, I think had he not dropped out of the race kind of weirdly, right? Yeah. Like eight weeks before, and then he came back in. Yeah. You know, the guy was like pulling a 20% or something. He, yeah, he pulled he had, he was, the vote. It's amazing. He was, he, was moving, he was moving up. And those other guys, Bush and Clinton, were kind of stagnant or dropping. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying he would have won, but I mean, you could imagine him winning a couple of states. And suddenly, you know, you got to, the House is deciding the vote. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's impossible for an independent to win. Uh, but you have to have resources and and uh, and time and I and the, I think world's a little different now. It's 
it's better in some ways because through social media, I think you can reach people, you can bypass the gatekeepers. Pro could just buy money. You could just buy ads and put himself on TV and just force himself on. Now you just have, you know, a hundred different alternatives like through Twitter, Facebook, and, um, you know, Instagram, Snapchat, or whatever those things are called. Um, but I think, I think if you're going to run for president, if you're Justin, you're going to, if you're either going to run one of the major parties, you're going to run as a libertarian. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that'd be just the only way you could do it. Just, and the libertarians have ballot access in all 50 states or right. will probably by that time. And so, I mean, I think that'd be sort of the logical choice. I mean, I don't think the Republican Party, it's too late to get into that. And it's too late and far too crowded in the Democratic primary. And I don't think, you know, his ideas are ready for lots of Democrats to hear right now. I think they're listening to him. Mm-hmm. And I think and I think this whole, uh, ex- I think is exposing the corruption of the leadership, both in the Republican and Democratic side. I think it's going to get a lot of people who are going to start questioning what's going on and why, you know, and that maybe the people they champion like Pelosi and those, those guys are just kind of lackeys just looking for power as well. And, and I think that's, I think that's his appeal. And that's why I think when you read analyses of if we were to enter the race, you know, what's going to happen. I think people don't know. I think people can see him taking it from the left. They can see him taking it from the right. I mean, you used to traditionally always say, Oh, you're always coming from the right. You know, greens take from the Democrats and the libertarians take from the Republican party. I don't know that that's the case now. I don't, I think you could, you can envision sort of anything and you could, I mean, I know that if Justin were to run, he wouldn't run just to, just to run. He would right. he'd want to, he'd he'd want run to win. He'd run to win. I mean, yeah. you know, maybe, it, and you might think he's crazy. I don't know. But I mean, that, I don't, he doesn't run to not win. And I would say as many times as I've doubted his, um, his strategy and his, um, his instincts, he's always been right. And he's always won. He's never lost, right? He's, he won the state house. Well, tell me what his instincts are, t- are saying. Has he told you? <laughs> his, his instincts right now are that, he, that his move was to become, declares independence. It's something we've actually talked about for years. It, this is not like something that just happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, you know, to dispel the redistricting thing, I mean, that's like totally crazy that people think that he, uh, that, that had anything to do with it. The redistricting, for one thing, doesn't happen for a couple of years. Secondly, if I'm Republican incumbent, the last person I want to face is Amash, who's never lost. Yeah, I mean, true. he's got a consistent conservative record better than any other Republicans in the air, in the surrounding districts. So I don't know why you'd want to go up against the guy. I mean, you might think you have establishment money, but the last guy who had establishment money had right to life, NRA, everybody got crushed. Yeah. So I don't, you know, I I don't think it'd be a, a cake would have been a cakewalk for anybody in for that process. And so. I'll tell you, I I really think, and I said this on on my uh, my podcast. Back after Mark, you know, after Mosh was on uh, with Mark and talked about possibly having a run at, at president, I think he would be a fantastic candidate. I know I'd support him. Um, and, you know, bringing the Libertarian Party makes a lot of sense. You've got the Koch brothers. You've got the Quincy Institute now, which is, you know, dedicated this, this yeah. tank to anti-war. So maybe, maybe you can even draw in some Soros money there. But <laughs> it does seem like, you know, Tulsi Gabbard, you had these Democratic debates. This is a good, good segue into, into the debates and healthcare. Mm-hmm. But you had the Democratic debates. You have all these these yahoos talking about free money for everybody and giving it out. And granted, Tulsi also partook in some of that with climate change and with health care. But she was one of the most Googled candidates after that debate, primarily because she was the only one strongly anti-war. And Justin Amash can completely own that space. And I think people underestimate the power of that message of you know the centric message where you're going to get Democrats that are just anti-war, that don't want to completely flip over the apple cart and, and run up the debt and get rid of private insurance, that are going to say, you know, this guy wanted to impeach Trump. This guy left the GOP. 
he's the most sane person I can vote for. So you got the, you got the sane vote on one side, and then you got the anti-establishment people on the other side being like, this guy just told everybody to go f themselves. Yeah, so, I, I mean, he really could draw. I agree. I think I think the war is just going to be. I think war is very unpopular with the American people. I think there's no question about that. I think that was part of the reason a lot of people got behind Trump because he sort of made overtures that he was going to stop things. He hasn't done anything. He's had two and a half years. We're still in Afghanistan. We're still in Syria. We're still bombing Yemen. Yep. And and I'm kind of tired of people, especially in the libertarians, who are apologizing for him and saying that he's like, well, he's caused restraint by not invading Iran. Well, kudos to him, I guess, for not starting another war, but yet. But he's launched missiles into Syria. And then we said, oh, yeah, it turns out the gas was you know, not from you know, aside, oh, yeah. yeah, which everyone knew at the time. It was totally obvious, but, yep. and then he surrounds himself with crazy, you know, maniacs like Bolton and, uh, and yeah, Pompeo. Pompeo. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I, I think that is definitely a, a an issue. And we know Gabriel will be wiped out. She's, she has no, she doesn't have fundraising base. And I don't think yeah. within the democratic party, I, I can't imagine her surviving very long. And I don't think I don't so. Know, She's I'll in the next stop. debate, but she won't make it to the final, you know, four stage at all. I wouldn't think so. And, and I guess I personally don't know what her real voting records. I've heard people say it's not as good as she makes it sound. Mm-hmm. I don't know that. I don't know the case. I, I looked a little bit into it just because we went and saw one of her talks and actually had pressed her on this question. Although I, I should have phrased it a little bit more pointedly to really get her outed, but she had supported the war on terror and but at the meantime, she's decrying, you know, Yemen and these other things that I kind of like, mm, you're you're kind of going both ways because the one thing entitles the president to go and bomb the crap out of all these other countries. So you got to rein in one to rein in the other. Anyway, uh, let's talk a little bit about healthcare to wrap up our, our conversation here. Um, what do you think about all the promises being made? Obviously, this goes against everything you and I believe in. But, you know, from your standpoint, they want to get rid of private insurance, number one. And granted, there's the medical cartels. You know, insurance is a problem. So what did, you know, what, give me a, a little rebuttal from your standpoint as far as opposing. What's the best way we libertarians can come out and oppose the Democratic talking points of get rid of private insurance and let's get Medicare for all? Well, I think anyone who has a family member who's a veteran, you can just say, well, if you want the medical system to look like the VA, then yep. I think you should be in favor of nationalizing your healthcare system. And, and I don't care who you are. If you're honest, you're going to think that's a disaster. I mean, if you, the VA system, and I trained at the VA a little bit as a medical student. Um, and I would say the veterans were the, the most fun patients to, de- to deal with. They were great because they had no idea why they were ever there. Uh, <laughs> They come in for a dermatology appointment. You're like, why are you here? Like, well, the van picked me up. And it's like, all right, well, I guess take your shirt off. We'll freeze some forts and stuff. Great. Uh, and they were, they're great. I mean, they're great people and they were so appreciative, uh, but they were just, it's such shoddy care in the VA and, um, and it has, it's gotten worse even since then. They've covered up all sorts of, you know, um, problems as far oh, as I like, saw the reporting times and, yeah, yeah terrible. Like, yeah. The wait times that misreporting all the, uh, all the coverage coming out of these places, you know, misreporting the, the records Yes, yeah. telling people their careers in the VA would be ruined if they accurately reported the times it took for weights. Oh, it's it's atrocious. Yeah, and you, and you look at when I I interviewed a Dr. Phil Booth, who's a, from the Institute for Economic Affairs in London, about the NHS, the the mm-hmm. National Health System in the UK, and it's like the same stories, right? It's not surprising. Now, the UK, you can also have private insurance in, in addition to your public. There aren't many places in the world actually that have just, um, aside from like Cuba, I mean, that we're in North Korea, where you can just get um, government. I think Canada is kind of that way. They can, of course, that's mainly because they just come to the United States to get healthcare. Yeah. So there aren't many places that it's just truly like a single payer. I, and a lot of the the terms the Democrats will use and and uh, is they're. 
they're not very accurate or they're very ambiguous. And so it's, it's hard to know what they're saying as far you know, like, what's the public option? Well, I just, I mean, I could say here right now and say, we have a public option. It's called Medicare, Medicaid, right. you got Medicaid for people who are you know, indigent and you've got Medicare for the elderly. So that we already have a public option. Mm-hmm. Now you're saying a public option for everybody. Well, they already can do it if they just you know, don't stop working or something, right? I mean, that'd be one. <laughs> right. <laughs> that's an extreme one. But uh, so it wouldn't be much different, I suppose. And I can guarantee you, if you had the option, you would not choose to go on Medicaid because yeah. the reimbursement is terrible. You can't find physicians. You can't find procedures. I mean, you can get some care, but it's, you know, having insurance is not means you're getting health care. It just, it doesn't even mean you have access. It just means, I guess, if you go to the ER, someone's going to pay the bill for you. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are, and then the other thing is you hear Medicare for all too. And so I think what, what liberty, I think when people say Medicare for all, they say, well, everyone thinks Medicare is great. Well, I would like, I'd challenge you to talk to the elderly and they'll say, yeah, Medicare is wonderful. And you ask them, would you have supplemental insurance? Mm-hmm. And they'll say, well, yeah, of course. And so you hear the people say, oh, Medicare for all, like it's going to pay everything. But that's because people don't even know what Medicare is right. because Medicare doesn't cover your medications. It only covers 80% of your hospitalization costs mm-hmm. unless you buy supplemental insurance for part D. I mean, so there's a lot of stuff that, that people, there are a lot of claims people make that they really don't know what they're talking about, I think mm-hmm. is part of it. Uh, and because it's just a good talking point and people are very frustrated, rightly so, with the cost of healthcare. It's, it's done nothing but skyrocket since the Affordable Care Act passed or Obamacare. Mm-hmm. And it's, um, I talk to people on my show, we, we, I find disruptive physicians, <laughs> disruptive in a good way, uh, innovative, and they're finding ways of operating sort of outside the system. Because I think fundamentally the problem with the system is that we do have a third-party payer dominated system, in which case the consumer is not making a direct transaction with the person who's providing the care, whether it's a hospital or a right. physician. And, that's, and you've got to have some other system where it's not mostly like that. Like if, if our car repair process was all through insurance, like it is when you get you know, a big car wreck or something with an auto body, because then you don't do much price shopping probably. Most people, they're like, just take it to whatever body shop you like and then just, everything's paid by insurance you're not very mindful of the cost of anything. And so you're not, it's, you know, you're not vigilant. And the same thing happens in healthcare now, whereas, yeah. you know, other, if, if it wasn't that way, and there are people who are moving around that, then I think you're going to get people control costs and you're probably gonna get better quality care as well. Would you say that was, that's really, if you had to pick one thing that if we could change one thing about our healthcare system and the way it operates, that would really, really be a, a, a force multiplier. It would be that connection between an interpersonal relationship or direct consumer to physician relationships. Yeah, I think, I think the direct purchasing of the product is what's key. I mean, I think, I think there's, there is definitely a market or there probably is some place for a catastrophic coverage. If something happens, you know, you may have health insurance if uh, the horrible things happen, but I think fundamentally you can, most things you can do through a market, market-based solutions and, and you can, you can, and, and so any sort of solutions that are out there that, that utilize that they're generally very, not only they're effective, but they're relatively popular. I mean, we talk about direct primary care might where you have direct membership payment model with a physician. Uh, you have uh, fully transparent surgery pricing, just cash pays for, for surgeries, which is usually much less than the hospital. And when I talked to Dr. Booth, he pointed this out at the NHS in England. You ask people, um, you know, do you think the NHS is great? And if they're talking to their cousin. They're going to say, yeah, you know, terrible wait times, whatever. They're talking to Americans. They'll say, oh, it's great. It's the best ever, right? But, but also part of the thing is with them in the UK is they only see that as the only way that can be done. And as long as you see that as... Well, if there wasn't no NHS, I'd, I'd probably just have a heart attack and I just dropped down the street. There'd be no way books would show up. I just would just, you know, expire right there. Mm-hmm. Or I got cancer and there's nothing that anyone would do. If you never, if you, if there's no 
other system, you would you'd assume that's the only way it can be done. And I would say, you know, there are all kinds of examples of this. I think, you know, bus systems in, in cities. Mm-hmm. We always assume you have to have the bus run by the municipal, you know, government. Why is that? I mean, we yeah. used to have private trolleys and stuff getting people around. I mean, those, there's no reason to think that it, there couldn't be private solutions that are probably superior and probably less expensive overall than what we've got now. Yeah, most definitely. All right. That's a, I think that's a good summation. Uh, so to wrap up, people can find you at paradox.com, D-O-C-S, not paradox, right? It's, For your it's podcast. The, it's the paradox. So it's the T-H- paradox. Sorry. Yeah, because okay. it turns out someone else had the other website. So the paradox.com, you can find me on Twitter at the paradox show, spelled the same way, P-R-A-D-O-C-S, because I'm supposedly interviewing another doctor, which I usually do. And then, um, you can find, I've got a personal Twitter feed is at Eric L. Larson as well. That's, oh, it's, it's Swedish. And um, yeah, I really appreciate the opportunity to be on. And, and you know, anytime, you. You want to, anytime you want to talk more about Justin, if he decides to do any other crazy things, I'm more than happy to come <laughs> on and talk about that. <laughs> Sounds good. It'll be like a weekly segment. We'll have to, we'll have to monitor and have you check in. <laughs> All right. Well, again, thank you, Dr. Eric Larson, guys. Make sure to check him out. I will link to his prior appearance on the Lions of Liberty program. I'll also listen to uh, Justin Amash's appearance on the last Lions of Liberty episode. And of course, I will link to your Twitter and your uh, your podcast website. So thanks again. I will talk to you soon. And uh, yeah, I don't have anything else to say. That's about it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So that wraps it up with Dr. Eric Lorson. And by the way, I forgot to ask this during the episode with him on, but I did ask him in a little pre uh, or a post amble that we did. And uh, just to to be very clear, Justin Amash has never been on the Lolita Express with Jeffrey Epstein, who, of course, is going to be our topic at this back end of the show. How can it not be, right? So if you have been following the news, if you've been in a cave, Jeffrey Epstein who was notorious for a plane that was nicknamed the Lolita Express. And this plane was a private jet, which flew to his private island, which was notorious for hosting any number of uh, political and media gatherings, elites from Hollywood, elites from the D.C. swamp. People from all over, there were power brokers, would go to this island and partake in questionable rituals. Some have said there is a owl statue of Moloch on this island, and Moloch is like this weird god that the elites are said to, to worship of all sorts of weird sex things. But he flew people, including former president Bill Clinton, some 27 times. Bill Clinton denies this. I'll get into that in a minute. But also Donald Trump's been on this plane. Any number of you know, all the top political and media personages that existed in the 90s rode on this Lolita Express many times. And what was said to have happened was that Jeffrey Epstein, who is a convicted sexual predator. He went to jail due to a uh, plea deal, which could have put him away for something like 40 to 60 years for uh, child endangerment, for child sex trafficking, all sorts of, of heinous crimes. But for which Trump's current labor secretary, Alexander Acosta, who was the U.S. attorney for the uh, Southern District of Florida, where a lot of the sexual trafficking and sex abuse took place, essentially happened in like Miami area, where Epstein's molesting 13 to 16 year old girls and recruiting them in like this pyramid scheme of underage sex to recruit more girls to come and basically fly on these planes, have sex with all these high profile people. Anyway, he cops a plea deal. Acosta allows him basically to get off with something like 13 months in prison, as opposed to the very lengthy service uh, or a sentence he was supposed to serve. Anyway, circling back to it. 
Jeffrey Epstein now has been rearrested, and they are going to come after him tooth and nail, supposedly, for all of these sex crimes that happened in the past and probably had continued to happen, if we're being perfectly honest, because Epstein marks a very interesting character because he's a man who clearly had very, very close political ties. As I said, Bill Clinton on his flight with flight logs. And this is according to the investigative journalist who, who really blew this story wide open back in the day. She went through all the flight logs. She talked to different pilots that were on the plane. She has the, the documents in front of her. Bill Clinton on the Lolita Express 27 times, sometimes with Secret Service, many times without the Secret Service. I wonder why a president would go anywhere without the Secret Service. Huh? Not saying it's definitively to have sex with underage children, but you know, the mind wanders. And by the way, you guys might notice I'm really going out of my way not to curse this episode. I think I dropped one S-bomb earlier, and that's out of uh, deference to Dr. Eric Larson. I, wanna, I want him to be able to share this episode as he might like and I don't want him to ostracize his audience. So I'm going out of my way to not be too too vulgar, which is hard, damn it, when we're talking about pedophiles, including Bill Clinton, including like Harvard laureates and Nobel Prize winners. You have, you know, you have Trump, you have Clinton, you have all these people flying on this plane, boning underage girls, and I'm trying to rein in my cursing here. God, what a week. What a kick in the nuts. Anyway. So now they're dragging Jeffrey Epstein back out here. And as opposed to before, where he had this juice, he had these, you know, he had this out with, a, with Alex Acosta, who was able to get him off in this plea deal. They're saying that now he doesn't have a lot to fall back on. He's no longer in this political spectrum. So in truth, his best move might be to roll over and give up the evidence on all these people that he's been basically blackmailing for years. So goes the theory. Essentially what would happen these people who would long time understood you go on Epstein's plane, this guy who supposedly made his money as a money manager for billionaires and became a billionaire himself seems a little crazy that you'd be able to pull that much money unless you're completely embezzling, but he would run these Lolita Expresses to go to a private island called Pedophile Island or Orgy Island, wherein there was this temple, which I mentioned before, that had this owl god Moloch, which is used for all sorts of weird rituals involving children. But people would fly in this plane. They'd have sex with underage girls. He would record them and then blackmail all of these political media educational elites to get what he wanted, extort them for money, extort them for political favors, extort them for basically getting a pass on his own pedophilia because they are partaking. And this has long been rumored in Hollywood. You're seeing a lot of fallout from this somewhat recently with Brian Singer and other people being accused of pedophilia. You're seeing even people like Chris Cornell, who they say he killed himself. Chris Cornell was on uh, working with the lead singer for what was it, Good Charlotte, who also supposedly committed suicide. They were working together to expose pedophile rings of powerful people in Hollywood. They both end up dead. A lot of pedophilia being the key, the key factor uniting all of these people together. So I am beyond excited to see what happens from this trial. I am really, really hoping that Bill Clinton ends up indicted. I'm hoping he goes to jail for being a, a sex offender. I hope that his wife gets thrown in jail for being complicit in it. I hope any number of these people go down. If it takes Trump down, God bless, man. Get Trump down there too. I want, I want like a full cleaning of the house. I want to see how many people can get taken out, how many dominoes can fall throughout the upper echelon of political, media, cultural emphasis. Because these people are all dirt. They're all disgusting scum. 
And I hope that Jeffrey Epstein is the golden key that's going to unlock all this pedophiles, expose this ring for what it is, and bring these people down into the depths where other inmates can then shiv the living hell out of them. Let that blood run deep in the sewers of the prison system, my friends. Okay, so that's one story. We're going to continue to monitor that as it goes along. The other thing I wanted to uh, to wrap around on is just, you know, I had said that I was very, very, mm, I wouldn't say completely opposed to believing Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and these other Democrat statements after they visited the border detention facilities. And this isn't to excuse people just being herded up and detained at the border, mind you. Now, the problem is I don't see any other way to do it at the moment. When you've got this massive migrant population coming up from El Salvador and Guatemala and all these other places through Mexico and including Mexicans, when you've got tens of thousands of people at the border, you cannot just simply let them in, not with the welfare state we have right now. I've said this before, and I emphasize that again. So I don't know what the other option would be other than, yeah, you got to stop them. You either prevent them from getting in, but if they get in, you detain them. I, I don't know what to tell you here. Well, these people go down. And they're saying that, oh, children are sleeping on concrete and they're drinking out of toilets and, I don't know, they're e- eating rats out of the ceiling. Yeah, Joss Weldon stuff. And so I, I expressed my heavy skepticism because I knew in advance they are going to say this no matter what. If they go and they're dining on champagne and freaking caviar, they're still going to come back and say, oh, my God, it was a horrendous scene. I've never seen it. This is a humanitarian crisis. So something must be done. So what happens? Okay. The border detention facility guards give a whole tour on video. They invite media and they give a tour showing that this is nonsense. Now, I acknowledge the fact I worked in PR, or I work in PR, uh, and unfortunately still do. Which, by the way, any of you libertarian business owners should be hitting me up to do public relations for you. I am incredibly good. Hit me up, fools. We'll talk. But anyway. Knowing that these border detention facilities are going to let in the media, of course, they're going to clean things up. But how much cleanup can you do when you have a facility that's just completely overrun? You know, it's not, no matter what you do, it's still not going to look incredible if the if they deplorable conditions existed in the way that AOC and her other cronies said that they did. And we also have Hispanic pastors went down to tour it. So these are Hispanics. They're conservative Christians. Well, I, mean, I don't know if they're conservative, at least as far as Trump is conservative, but they are compassionate, they're caring, they're religious-based, they want to help these people that are their kin, right? They go down and tour the facility. The same one that AOC went at and said that people were drinking out of toilets, and they said that they are shocked by the misinformation, that none of what she said is true. So, surprise, surprise, we're seeing these people are just liars. They're just shills. You know, it ties into what we were talking with Eric Larson. They have their political bent. They're going to lie and cheat and steal to get it done. They don't give a shit about the truth. Oh, I cursed again. Sorry. Well, two, two, <laughs> two shits in this shack isn't bad for the show, guys. Anyway, that's, that's a quick aside I wanted to talk about. Other thing I wanted to talk about is uh, this chick, Allison Frankel. I'm not sure who she is. I'm not really going to look into it too deeply, but she must be somebody of note. I believe she's a journalist. Uh, 15.9 thousand likes on this tweet as of seven, five. So the day after 4th of July, but tying into the immigration debate and the census question, because Trump is trying to push through the census question for the life of me. I can't see why this is such a big deal, because if you're an illegal immigrant and they ask you on the census, if you're an illegal immigrant, why would you fill it out? (laughs) That's what I don't get about this. 
I don't understand anybody that's an illegal immigrant currently that says, yes, I'm an illegal immigrant. It seems to invite a lot of attention you wouldn't want. So the census goes door to door, right? You see the census person out there. If you're an illegal immigrant, uh, don't answer the door. How about that idea? Maybe just don't answer the census. Don't fill it out. Why, why does this question relevant? Why does it matter in any way? It seems like the stupidest thing to have a national debate over and to make it to this fire point. It is ridiculous. So anyway, Allison Frankel uh, tweets out, Trump just said in an impromptu news conference that he needs citizenship data for congressional districting. And so she says, now we know this is an effort to deny political representation to non-citizens. Does anything about that phrase come across as a little stupid? This is an effort to deny political representation to non-citizens. Yeah, they're not citizens. They don't get political representation. That's the point. I mean, is there anything to lay bare naked the Democratic push, what they care about? is simply to have illegals vote to change the voter polls, to to change the balance of power and make sure they push through this socialist nonsense that these people bring in from their home countries, to make sure that the handouts continue, that we can buy these votes off for these people. No, you don't get representation if you're a non-citizen. That's kind of the freaking point. It's like living in Looney Tunesville. I got Bugs Bunny to my left. I got Porky Pig to my right. I'm eyeing them both up. They're getting the lube tank ready. We're going to have us a good time later. If we're living in Joss Whedon fantasy world, let's just keep it going, man. Why am I working? Why am I bothering to do this podcast? I've got a creative mind. I'm a screenwriter. I could write myself into a fantastic world where, where everything's peachy keen, where I can pick plums off the trees that are filled with sweet, sweet whiskey. Mmm, that plum whiskey. I guess it's more like plum sake like the Japanese drink, but bear with me. I mean, 16,000 likes on this tweet. Now, it's not to say if you're here and you're not a citizen, you shouldn't care about the politics of the day, but I'm sorry, if you're not a citizen, you don't get a vote. You can have an opinion. If free speech is allowed to exist and continue, if the Democrats don't deny that to people, you can voice your opinion until you become a citizen of this, this great nation. But until then, tough titties... That's the way it works. Just crazy. All right. Oh, you know, one thing I forgot about the sex thing with uh, Epstein, guys. I got to circle back to this because this was also too, too funny. But all this Epstein stuff comes out, right? Bill Clinton is directly in the crosshairs with his 27 trips to Orgy Island with Epstein on the Lolita Express. And Christine Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi's daughter, who I am allowed to see her tweets, but the Lions of Liberty are blocked from seeing her tweets, by the way. I don't know if we've ever had interactions with her, but apparently she doesn't like us enough to block us. This is her tweet. This Epstein case is horrific and the young women deserve justice. It is quite likely that some of our faves are implicated, but we must follow the facts and let the chips fall where they may, whether on Republicans or Democrats. (laughs) I mean, she's getting out ahead of us. Some of our faves are going to be implicated. She knows they're going to be implicated, my friends. She knows that the guillotine doth hangle above her dainty head. So she's getting in front of it. If this isn't an implicit admission that the Democrats are going to see heavy casualties from this thing, I don't know what is. And I love it. Put it in a bowl. Put some alphabet pasta in there. Let me swim around in it. 
because I'm going to spell out some sweet Democrat indictments. How I'm eating them noodles up like Pac-Man. Delicious. All right, let me see. Is there anything else I want to talk about in this show? I'm scrolling. Sorry, you got to bear with me as I'm scrolling through here. I think that's it. That's going to do it. I got nothing else for you. It's already a long show with the Eric Larson interview. So again, thanks to Dr. Eric Larson, guys. Make sure to check him out on the Paradox podcast. And of course, as I said in the show notes, lionsofliberty.com forward slash ELL132. I will put show notes linking to his appearance here, Justin Amash, his podcast, etc. Otherwise, guys, thanks for listening in. And uh, don't forget to check out our show on Monday with Mark Clare doing in-depth interviews with leaders of the libertarian movement. Don't forget to check out John Odermatt on Felony Fridays. Again, uh, YouTube demonetizing our channel. Not that we made millions off it, really, or, or, or even a amount you could shake a stick at, but still, demonetizing our platform on YouTube when you've got John Odermatt out there fighting to keep people out of prison fighting to change the justice system, trying to help people that are minorities, trying to help nonviolent offenders get out of prison, exposing the horrible injustices that happen. And these freaking bastards at YouTube think that that's not worthy of monetization. Shake my head at this sad world. All right, cats, kittens, that's it. From me, Brian McWilliams, from Electric Liberty Land, from Lions of Liberty, always stay plugged in to Liberty. 